Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me that I was bipolar. I was released with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for about a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using music for therapy and as a way to escape. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Touring bands, food and shelter can be rare commodities. Since 2011, Feed the Scene has housed more than 1,200 bands from 24 countries. The Band and Breakfast is located in Baltimore, Maryland, and is run by Rachel Taft. After her mother died, Rachel fell into a deep depression. She needed to help others to help herself. It's well known that helping others has a positive effect on a person's psychological well-being. The first band Rachel housed in 2011 was Dopamines, a pop-punk band from Cincinnati, Ohio. The band is currently blasting away in the background here. Rachel even remembers what she served them, bacon-wrapped lamb chops. Other bands who have passed through the house include Less Than Jake and the Dolly Rots. Feed the Scene is a comfortable, clean, safe place to rest and refuel for punk bands on long tours with sometimes sketchy conditions. In 2018, it became a nonprofit society. Rachel has dealt with depression and ADHD since she was a child. So when band members staying at the house are having a hard time, Rachel's able to lend her ears. Community is crucial for mental health. Feed the Scene's offer of food and shelter is a welcome solace for punk bands. My name is Rachel Taft and I run Feed the Scene and we have been a part of the local and international punk scene for, will be 10 this year. Feed the Scene started out as a free band hostel that I run out of my house. Originally it was myself and now I have a team of a few people who work with me who are super awesome. It has been an ever fluctuating group of human beings, <laughs> but they're all pretty rad. You know, I realized that People needed a place to stay when they were on the road and they needed a safe place to sleep and they didn't really get good sleep or good food. And when I first started Feed the Scene, we really just fed people and that's why it only referenced feeding. So we'd basically have like a dinner party before the show and I'd invite a band over to have dinner for free so they could have like a well-rounded meal. And eventually we ended up housing people. So, and I say we, because I include all of my people who are part of the business as as we, even though it's oftentimes, depending on when it's been in timeline, me. But I like taking care of people. So basically, Feed the Scene is a band hostel, and I have a bunch of bunk beds in the house, and we give everyone a clean, safe place to sleep. So we, we basically started out as the band hostel, and everyone would just come and stay at the house, and it was really nice. And then we ended up booking shows. We help run a music festival in Baltimore called Frozen Harbor that happens every February. We take over a bunch of 
venues inside power plant and have a festival that runs all at the same time. It's pretty fun. But Feed the Scene for me basically started as a coping mechanism, which was hard to explain to a lot of my friends. My mom died when I was 29, 28. I was really sad, obviously. Like that's kind of a thing that upends your life. She died in 30 seconds and we were not expecting it at all. She was just gone. And I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I moved out after that. I was living at home for a long time. I really liked my family. We got along really well. <laughs> I did not want to live not outside of my house. But so at that point, it was really time for me to leave. And I moved out and I moved into the Feed the Scene house where I live now. And my mom was able to leave me some money at the time. And I was able to not work for a little while, which is a very lucky first world thing to be able to do, but basically fall into a fun depression. Yay. <laughs> I had already had some level of treatment resistant depression as a younger person, um, which I had worked on for a long time. I've had a therapist for my whole entire life. I was diagnosed at two with ADD, <laughs> uh, ADHD actually. Um, and then I was studied for the majority of my formative years. I had a appointment once a week where they were basically monitoring whether the symptoms they identified in a two-year-old manifested into ADD and what kind of ADD based on like, you know, my patterns of learning and all that other stuff. So my mom passed away and I allowed myself to fall into a, a pretty solid depression for a while and I didn't have to go anywhere for a little bit. So I didn't and it wasn't good and it wasn't healthy. And I decided that I was going to take what little time I had as a break for, that I could afford to, you know, take off, quote unquote. And I was going to see every band I could see and every music festival I could go to and do every fun thing I could think of just to like try to help myself get out of this. And what I ended up doing was meeting a whole bunch of people who all told me horrible stories of the road, you know, because that's kind of what you do when you end up after a show sitting around drinking with everyone is you tell, you know, war stories. I realized that this idea that I had kind of started with feeding people, we decided we we're going to feed people, that it was really actually needed. People needed safe places to sleep. It wasn't just a fun thing for me. It was an actually needed commodity. But it also really helped me ground myself back into reality. I had to bathe today. I had to eat today. I couldn't have cupcakes and cheese for dinner because we had a band coming over and I promised them I was making them dinner. I had to do laundry because someone had to clean their sheets and I had to clean the house because someone was going to see it. So in the very beginning, it was it's sort of hard to explain to my friends as they were like, oh, you're spending all this money and time on these people who don't really care. And I was like, I don't think that's real. Everybody I know that stayed with me is very grateful and very thankful and, and very wonderful. But also it's a very weird concept for a lot of people to just invite a whole bunch of strangers into your home at weird o'clock in the morning that you've never met and you just hope are nice. <laughs> you know, don't do this at home, but also do this at home, quote unquote. One of the main things they say for lifting out of depression is to help others. That's a huge part of getting well, so it makes sense. Absolutely. My mom was a huge caretaker. That was part of the reason why I ended up feeding people was I felt really close to her feeding people because she always fed everybody. 
So that was sort of where this started. I was like, this is a nice thing I can do for people. I can take care of them in a way that I'm able to in the mental capacity that I'm dealing with now. And then it's turned into 10 years later and two entire businesses. And we turned the hostel into a nonprofit and we're working on fundraising things. We have fundraised for several things. We're just trying to make a really solid positive out of something that basically kept me alive. These people needed me to stay alive and I needed them to stay alive too. Do you mind me asking about your mom? Oh, sure. Um, What do you want to know? Well, I'm just curious to know, you mentioned 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. She died at 59. She said she never wanted to turn 60, and she didn't have to. It was on her terms. We don't entirely know exactly what happened. She died of natural causes, and it was... My mother is Jewish, and while I am not a religious person, um, my Nana is, or was, And my Nana wanted my mom buried in the Jewish cemetery with the rest of the family because my Nana was still alive and had to bury her own daughter, which is obviously a lot. So we decided that we were going to not do an autopsy and not do anything that would desecrate the body in the eyes of her God so she could be buried in the cemetery correctly. But it was definitely weird getting that call from my dad. Hey, uh, come to the hospital. You should kind of do that now. I was like, ooh. Okay, we'll do we'll do that. It was a lot. I bet. And like you said, you became a mother for the scene in some ways. Yeah. Oh no, I call everyone my adopted children. I have four thousand adopted adult children. All of them belong to me and I keep them forever. And when you come here, your family and your home and your phone connects to the Wi-Fi and you know which bed belongs to you. <laughs> I would imagine you've had to deal with a lot of other folks' mental health issues too at the house. Oh, I would say definitely. Probably not in catastrophic ways, but touring is rough. You exist in a very small space for potentially a very long time, depending on how long you're out. You're away from everyone you know, except for a few people, and you're stuck in a tin can with those people for a very long time, and it can agitate. It's funny because everyone initially, like a couple years in, when I would meet people and tell them what I did, and they were like, oh, God, it must be just a constant party at your house all the time. Like, you must never get sleep. And I was like, no. All people want to do when they get here is go to bed. <laughs> They're like, oh, I get a bed with a mattress? There's not a dog in it or a weird animal, and it doesn't have to flip the pillow over because it's not covered in vomit? Ted isn't going to yell at me <laughs> in the morning when he wakes up and I'm here and he doesn't know why I'm in the living room? People were just stoked as hell. But like, I'm not going to say it's never a party because you get to know people after a while and then you miss them. Then you want to like talk about what you've been doing for the last year when you see people, which is always the best part. Because no matter how bad my day is, sometime between like 10 p.m. and four o'clock in the morning, five to 15 people are going to show up and they're going to tell me their stories and I'm going to tell them my stories and then my day will get way better. Is that something that can only happen in the punk scene the way that it does at the house? having that shared camaraderie of the punk scene in general. So we all have war stories. We've all been in the trenches together. We've all had that awful night or that absolutely phenomenal night. And also to a certain extent, a lot of the bands that I house are bands that all sort of exist in the fest community or a couple other music festival communities. So we all kind of know each other after a while and we all see each other three or four times a year. And it's nice. Like you get to hug all your friends. It's a huge community that's very important to a lot of us. 
why do you think it is that folks are so passionate about the punk scene? I think it's funny because there's the meme concept of like, you know, oh, you'll grow out of this when you're an adult. And it's like, no, I'm going to be 40 in a month. And it's not a thing we grow out of. It's not a phase. I know tons of people who even remotely settled down and it's not a phase. They still go out to things. They just have to be more selective about it. We have so many people who are bringing kids with them to shows. It's not people who are bringing their kids to shows and standing in the back because they don't care about the music. It's people who are bringing their kids to shows to share the love of the music with them, which is super awesome. My parents were always super into music and they shared that a lot with me. Don't know if I can fully qualify that as like why I'm into music, but it was a big part of it. Back to the ADHD story. Now you mentioned you had that from being quite young, you said two years old. That was rough for me because I had ADHD. So I was a very hyper child, extremely hyper child. My cousin would ask if he could play something and I would have already broken it kind of hyper child. I was very excited about everything. They didn't medicate me until I was in third grade. Um, They wanted to, you know, wait a little bit and, and see whether or not I really needed it. And they started me on Ritalin, because that's all they had at the time. And Ritalin was really awful. Let me rephrase that. Ritalin was wonderful, but also awful at the same time. The first day I took a five milligram Ritalin, we went to an antique store and I didn't break anything. And I almost cried. We got out of the store and I like yelled at my parents. I was like, I didn't break anything. I was so excited. Like it was the first time that I was able to like actually concentrate on things. And I had a love-hate relationship with Ritalin for a long time because Ritalin comes down really hard. So you take one in the morning and you take one at lunch and then you come home and you fall off in 30 minutes and everything is impossible. And you go from being able to concentrate for eight hours straight to not being able to concentrate at all. So they finally put me on a third pill at night so I could, you know, actually get my homework done without crying. Of course, you go through your rebellion years of middle school and high school, and it's, it's really tough to have to be told to a certain extent that you can't be a person unless you're medicated. I really didn't like that concept. I understand now as an adult, it's a reality and it's not my fault. It's a you know chemical imbalance in my brain that doesn't mean I'm a bad person, but it was very frustrating at that age to have someone tell me like any time that I did something wrong or bad, oh, well, you didn't take your medication. It was just like a catch-all for everything I did wrong. It made me not want to take my meds, which was not awesome because I actually ended up not finishing college because of it. (laughs) That combined with my thyroid completely cutting out, which has ended up into the depressive episode, which is why I did not finish college. Uh, But I did come home and get that fixed. I spent a lot of nice time with my therapist on a nice amount of Wellbutrin. (laughs) Fix that right up. And how are you doing with it in your adulthood? (laughs) I spent a whole lot of time unmedicated for ADD. So I developed a huge amount of coping mechanisms. I also am a lot less hyper than I was back then. Apparently, I used up all of my energy and now I really enjoy napping. (laughs) But (laughs) I have come up with a lot of coping mechanisms, but also. I see a therapist once a month and I have for the almost the entirety of my life because I believe that preventative maintenance is really important. So I have a little bit of a catch-all. I've had the ability, luckily, to be able to afford to do that. Not everybody can. So I I don't want to like pretend this is a magical thing that everyone can magically do. But luckily, I was able to afford to do that. 
And having that safety net was kind of important because I was able to catch some things before they got really bad, but also to a certain extent, I spent most of my life analyzing all of my motivations for everything. <laughs> so I've gotten pretty good at being an amateur psychologist for other people, but also I really do think that it helps me in my job because when we do major productions like these huge concerts, it's a lot of organization and a lot to take care of to not have fall through the cracks. So I had to learn how to circumvent myself. I had to be really, really honest about what I'm good and bad at and figure out if I didn't want to have to take my medication, how I was going to deal with the things I was bad at. And also recognizing if things were not going well enough, if I needed to take my medication, I still have a bottle. I try Concerta, which is the one I'm on now. That's the one I like the best. But I don't love being on it, <laughs> which I know is sort of annoying, but I was on Adderall when I was in college. And I just remember my friends telling me, like Adderall is also another just completely different feel. I always felt like I was in my head and like I didn't talk. And I'm a fairly verbose, loquacious person. I, I do talk a lot for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I know, right? My friends were like, you just sit there and you're quiet and we're not used to that. And it's uncomfortable because usually you're a person who is a conversation driver and you make jokes and you're talking about stuff. And then when you are on your medication, you're laughing in your head and you don't say anything. It felt weird. Like I, I didn't love it. That's part of the reason why I ended up stopped taking the Adderall. If the Concerta had existed at the time that I was on the Adderall in college, if I had switched to that, I, it may have been a different story because I don't feel that way on the Concerta. Is punk rock another coping mechanism for you? Oh, absolutely. There is nothing like piling on top of 47 people and screaming at the top of your lungs. There's just absolutely nothing. Like, I think it was 2017 or 2018, we ended up down at Fest and it was the first set we even got into. And I was so excited just to be there that I lost my voice the first set that I saw. <laughs> yeah, join the club. Everybody that we know that goes to Fest, we always compete at who can lose their voice first. Oh, God, it was so bad. And then we had, because we hadn't even, <laughs> had to do registration and all this. I couldn't talk like the whole rest of the weekend. I'm trying to give people desserts. Hello, I'm Rachel from Fantasy. <laughs> so scream therapy, and you mentioned screaming your lungs out a minute ago. Why is screaming important? It's a release. It's not something that we can generally do in polite society and have it be acceptable, but it's 100% acceptable in our community to run into a room for 15 or 20 minutes and scream with all your friends and run right back out and do it again in another place five minutes later. And that could be a model, I think, for other folks. <laughs> right. That freedom, right? Music is extremely emotionally evocative. We have so many friends who pour their heart and their souls into their music. We all use it as a catharsis, whether or not we're screaming it or just listening to it in the car or crying during it. <laughs> it's something that I think that we all really need. Like silence is weird. Don't get me wrong. I like being alone sometimes, but absolutely no noise is weird. We want music. We want rhythm. We want something to get our minds going. Do you remember the first time you went to see a punk band? Pretty sure I was like 16 and I finally got dragged to a show. We used to go to this VFW post 160 that was over by the airport. It was five bands for five bucks. That's where I met almost everybody I knew at that time. I had one friend who knew some bands and she was like, I'm going to take you. We're just going to go. And I was like, okay. I didn't know that much about local music. I had a couple of friends who were kind of in bands. Like I think it was a sophomore or junior in high school. And it was exciting. I'm in a place where I'm by myself. 
you know, I was, I was able to drive. So I didn't have to like go with parents and, oh my God, my mother called the VFW to make sure there would be an adult present. <laughs> I was so <laughs> embarrassed. And then the weirdest thing was a couple of years ago, I realized that if that happened now, I would be the adult present. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm the adult present. Oh. Do you remember how you're feeling about the punk scene when you first got into it? Were you feeling like you had been accepted? Were you feeling like you could talk about your issues? I feel like I could. I had a lot of really good close friends. And I feel like one of the things that does draw people to alternative styles of music and dress is being neurodivergent. Not everyone is able to function exactly the same way. And people are dealing with a lot of stuff, you know, not everyone just entirely dresses in black and listens to screamy music for fun. We do often have things that draw us to that because we're dealing with a lot of emotions. And especially at that time in our lives where we don't know who we are yet as people, and we're trying to figure out what the concept of being an adult looks like. We have no concept of our own longevity. So everything can seem really amazing or really bleak. And it could be two instances apart, depending on how you're doing. The punk community gave me a place to be. Like, I never felt like I couldn't be in it. It's always been home. And it's one of the reasons why I think that I want to make it a home for other people. And a healthy outlet for people, too. Not the drinking and the drugging as much, but the going to punk shows, screaming your face off. It's safe spaces to be. And not even so much specifically a traditional, quote unquote, safe space, but just a place to be that you feel comfortable and loved. We always want our shows to feel like family. I want you to feel like family when you come here. I always tell people that I'm your mother. Like, do you hate your family? I'm your mom. I have adopted several people who were actually adults who don't talk to their parents anymore. And I call them my children and I, I text them on their birthday and I make sure they're okay. And we talk all the time and family is chosen. It doesn't have to be biological. And there's food for the soul as well. Absolutely. And also for the mouth. This food is delicious. <laughs> That's probably the biggest nurturing aspect of Feed the Scene is the idea that you're feeding folks and mental health starts with things like sleep and diet. Oh, absolutely. A couple of years ago, I was in a bad place for a while. It's one of those moments where I had to figure out how to circumnavigate myself. I had to circumvent myself. I had to get around whatever I was dealing with because, you know, sometimes it's hard to get out of bed. You know, I've had times where I have haven't got much out of bed for like a month. That's not healthy. So I have to figure out what can I do that will help this? So, okay. My answer is I'm going to go get a bottle of water and then I'm going to drink that water and I'm going to do it again. And every time I have to get up, go to the bathroom, I'm going to get a new bottle of water. And then slowly I will hydrate myself and that isn't going to cure everything, but I'm going to feel a little bit better and I'll have a little bit more energy and I won't feel as gross. And then I'll be able to do one more thing that I wasn't able to do mentally before because I have a little bit more. And then I have to decide I really want something. And then I build on that. A couple of years ago, my therapist had me do this cheek swab and brain scan, like a diagnostic of your brain from your cheek swab. And they give you like an eight page diagnosis of medications that are likely to work for you and not likely to work for you. What kind of brain chemistry you have. I learned that I've always had some level of treatment resistant depression from as long as I've been at least past puberty. So going through 
that level of just not being able to fix it has always been kind of frustrating. So it turns out that my body doesn't turn folic acid into folate correctly. And folate is the building block for serotonin. So half the reason I have been depressed for so long is because I just needed folate pills. It doesn't fix everything, but it at least allows me to make serotonin now. So I have to take my folate pill and my two fish oil pills and some vitamin D pills and that helps me get to a place where I can be a person. It doesn't fix everything. Like I'm not trying to tell you that supplements are going to take the place of actual medication in terms of mental health for a lot of things. But for me, it helps me fix pieces of what's wrong so I can take care of more of what's wrong. How are conversations in the house in regards to mental health being handled or what kind of conversations are happening? A lot of times when people come through, they're just sad. They miss their loved ones. You know, a lot of times we end up with someone who will sit on the porch well past the time that everybody else goes to bed and they'll just sit on the phone with their significant other for a long time. I try not to overlisten because that's kind of rude and weird, <laughs> but it's a lot of people who are, are just dealing with that level of loneliness that happens when you're surrounded by people, but not all of them are your people. And it's a lot of heavy performing, not even just performing music, it's performing yourself. You have to be a person. And especially when you're starting, you have to sell yourself so hard because you need people to like you and be interested in you and want to follow your band. You are 100% your own salesman. And then when you do get big, you have to hold on to that image of yourself. You still want people to buy into you as a concept and your band as a concept. It's a lot of work to either perform or make yourself that vulnerable. Making yourself that vulnerable is extremely emotionally exhausting. And you're feeling like you're having to provide some quasi-counseling along yeah. the way. I think that also a lot of band members get that too, that they have to deal with a lot of people who are like, oh my God, your music saved my life. Oh, I barely know you. And now we're having a serious mental health conversation. Yay. How do I give you just enough to make you feel good, but not so much that I've made me uncomfortable <laughs> or violated HIPAA laws. I've definitely had nights where I've sat on the porch and we've just, someone is left up and they're uncomfortable in a situation or they're dealing with a home problem and you just sit and talk. Like, again, I've had a therapist my entire life. And at this point, that's like 38 years, 37 years of my life. So I'm fairly decent at helping people ferret out problems or at least come up with possibilities for reasonings behind issues or how to fix things. It's always easier to focus on somebody else's problems instead of yourself. How would your mom feel about the work that you're doing? Oh, my mom was really good at fixing everybody else's problems. <laughs> I feel like in the very beginning of me doing this, she probably would have been like, what the hell are you doing with yourself? But I think that if she could see where I was right now, I think she'd be very proud of me. I still think she'd be a little confused by it, but my mother was very business oriented and very good at business. So I think that the fact that we have done so many large scale shows and so many productions in years, um, despite whatever mental issues that I was dealing with at the time, um, I think she'd be very proud of me. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Scream Therapy. I thought I'd tell you a little bit more about myself. 
I was born in Powell River, a small coastal town in British Columbia, Canada. After my mental breakdown in 2018, I had to take a break because everything seemed impossible. I needed to focus on my recovery. I did my best to take care of my mental health while dealing with the intense mood episodes of bipolar. I'm really glad that this podcast has been a big part of my recovery, and I thank you for listening. Screen Therapy is now airing on college and community radio stations. They include my hometown radio station, CGMP, out of Powell River, CJSF 90.1 FM from Simon Fraser University, Radio Humber from Humber College in Toronto, Ontario, Radio Waterloo, CKMS from Waterloo, Ontario, and Kootenai Co-op Radio in Nelson, BC. You can connect with me at soundcloud.com slash screamtherapy. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care and be well.